We're in John chapter 1 this morning. We're starting a new series that I've titled Behold. And you'll see why it is titled Behold in this morning's message. But this will be our Easter series that we'll do over the next two weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, on Easter Sunday, and the Sunday following Easter. So a four-part series. But this morning, as we think about and look at John chapter 1, there's a few questions that we're going to wrestle with and that will really be uh, clarified for us in God's word this morning, such as who am I, what do I want to do with my life, and why? Now, whether we intentionally ask these questions or we simply figure them out as we go along in life, these are questions which all of us seek to find answers to. Believers and non-believers alike are seeking to find answers to those questions of who am I and why do I exist? See, identity drives us. It's what helps us determine our purpose in life. And when we have a solid foundation of who we are, we can then live out our purpose with full confidence and full assurance. See, the problem is, though, that we live in a day and time which says that there is no absolute truth. At least that's the word of the culture which is in and of itself an absolute statement. So it makes no sense, but that's for another time. So according to our culture, because there is no absolute truth, our identity then is falsely constructed by who? Ourselves. We get to determine. We are the ultimate captain of our ship, according to the culture, that is. And so in line with that thinking, because we determine our identity Our culture would also have us think that we determine our purpose. Not only who we are, but but why. Well, the, the problem is all of this is built on a shifting foundation. Because as we pointed out at the beginning, this is built on a sandy foundation of the absence of truth. When there is no absolute truth, you can have no absolute concrete understanding of who you are and why you are. And so this is why we see so much chaos and turmoil and outright blatant sinfulness in our Western culture and in our world. Because people are obsessed over trying to determine or find out who they are. And therefore, no one has a solid foundation for why they exist. And so they're constantly trying to figure out who they are because who they thought they were ultimately doesn't satisfy them. So then they have to move to the next definition of who they are and why they are. And they're in this constant cycle of trying to figure it out because there is absence of absolute truth in their mind. And this is why we see Supreme Court nominees unwilling to answer the question of what a woman is. This is why we see Disney executives in a formal meeting discussing how they are setting out storylines with openly LGBTQ plus characters. This is why there's a plus on the end of that conglomeration of letters because when there is no absolute truth, then there is no end to who we can create for ourselves. And this is why we've seen the degradation of marriage in our time. This is why we've seen the murder of innocent children in the womb become normalized. Because when the truth is relative, all of these things are determined on a person-by-person basis. According to the culture, a woman can only be defined by one who identifies as a woman. Marriage is for everyone and is not a permanent covenant by, but a temporary commitment. And the value of life is also determined by our desires or by matter of convenience. The problem is that if we're not careful to keep ourselves anchored to God's word, to the absolute concrete truth, then we can easily begin to see our own focus drift with cultural tides. So this morning, as we begin our four-part Easter series, we'll be challenged to see how God's word provides, how God's word provides answers to all of these things. It provides us a foundation of truth. We'll see that ultimately the answers to everything that we're looking for are found in knowing Christ and Him crucified. 
And today, specifically, we'll look at the identity of Christ as the Lamb of God in the ministry of John the Baptist. And we'll challenge ourselves to ask ourselves that how do we see this identity of Christ as the Lamb of God? How has that impacted our hearts as the one who assigns and determines and equips our identity and purpose and message as the covenant people of God. So I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that it brings truth, that it is sweet like honey to our mouth. And so we pray as those who are hungry this morning for truth and as those who desire to walk in absolute truth, the absolute truth that is your word, we pray that you would shape us, mold us, direct us, guide us this morning as we seek to humble ourselves and to crucify our flesh and walk in newness of life that you provide us in Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So the Gospel of John was likely written somewhere between 70 and 100 A.D., By the Apostle John. Now, not to be confused with John the Baptist, who we just read about and we're going to talk plenty about this morning. And John's audience was made up of Jews and Gentiles living in Ephesus and throughout the Greco-Roman world. And so John's gospel opens with one of the most beautifully crafted poetic statements on the preeminence and power of Christ, as well as the significance of the incarnation of Christ. He then quickly transitions into linking the story of Jesus with the story of John the Baptist. Why? Well, because of the connection that I just mentioned. Their storylines are inextricably linked by the supreme author of time, that is, God himself. Now, we need to remember who it is that we're talking about here. This John the Baptist, a man whose birth was foretold by an angel of the Lord and was itself a miracle of God. As his parents were old in age, his mother had been barren up all her life up until that point. He's son of Zechariah, priest of the temple. And he's son of Elizabeth, cousin of Mary, mother of Jesus. And he was the forerunner to the Messiah. And we see this if you kind of just look a little bit back there to verses 6 through 9. You see John, the apostles, according, uh, tying in the ministry and the life of John the Baptist with Jesus. As we see, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, him there being Jesus. And then verse 8, he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so here, John the Apostle introduces us to John the Baptist. And in introducing John, he wants it to be clear what John had come to do. I know there's a lot of Johns right here, all right? But Luke, in his gospel account, achieves this by detailing the birth story of John the Baptist. However, here in John's gospel account, he's skipping forward and starting the story in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
So he chooses a more poetic telling of how John the Baptist and Jesus' life were interconnected by God's design. And now if you skip there to verse 14, we begin to see some of the message which John the Baptist was preaching at this time. As again, John in starting his gospel has started us right in the, the thick of it, right in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist and the intersection of the two, whereas we have Matthew and Luke start us in the birth narrative of Jesus. And so if you look at verse 14, we can see some of the message that John was preaching at this time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So in looking at this portion of John's gospel this morning, I want us to take note of the identity and purpose and message of John the Baptist. And in taking note of this, I want us to see how John was directly influenced by who Jesus was and what God the Father had sent him to do. That is, what God the Father had sent Jesus to do. And that this spoke everything and influenced everything that John said and did in his ministry. So in seeing this, my hope is that we realize that our lives are to mirror that of John the Baptist as he humbly sought to fulfill his God-given purpose of exalting Christ and making his name known by calling people to repentance. So we're going to see a model for us in John the Baptist, a model of exalting Christ above all else. And the first thing that we can glean here from the life of John the Baptist is his firm sense of identity. And that his sense of identity does not come from who he desired to be or he, who he felt he was in his heart or who his culture said he should be. But instead, his identity is firmly rooted in who God said he would be through his word. You see, church, our creator defines our identity. And that's our first point this morning. Our creator defines our identity. This is the first thing that we can glean from the life and ministry of John the Baptist. In this small glimpse of John's message in verse 15, we see that the boldness and confidence of his message is rooted in the foundation of who God's word said he would be. Just as we read the angel of the Lord proclaimed to John's father, Zechariah, in Luke 1, where we see he said, And he will be great before the Lord to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John humbly proclaims, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So may the same be true of us. May we stare deeply into the mirror that is God's word, not seeking to shape our own reflection, but instead seeking to see for ourselves who God has created us to be. And when we do this, when we live this way, we realize that this life is not about us, but is completely and wholly about the one who created us. You see, as we look at John's message here and see his boldness and confidence, we see this very thing. And when we do this, when we live this way, we realize this same truth. See, all too often we see those who drift with cultural tides get this formula backwards. Rather than looking to God's word to shape who they are and how they are to live, they look to themselves first, they look to culture first, and then they simply choose what parts of the Bible justify their lifestyle, or they dismiss the Bible altogether. And as we continue reading, we begin to see what kind of response John's message of the coming Messiah was provoking in his day. And that's where we began this morning, there in verse 19. We'll pick back up and read it again. And this is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, some of you may remember when we briefly looked at this passage back in the fall during our time in Malachi, as this is a significant moment in John's life and ministry. This is the moment when he publicly identifies himself as being sent by God to declare the way for the Messiah. See, John's identity is the very thing which the Pharisees are questioning in this moment, in this little back and forth. They want to know who this hairy, wild man is that is attracting such a crowd and is drawing attention to himself and is proclaiming such a serious and revelatory message. And in Matthew 3, we're given a little bit more detail as to the tone and the tenor of John's message as we see that he was also directly calling out the very religious establishment that was coming to question him for failing to properly prepare for the Messiah and failing to properly prepare the people of God for the coming of the Messiah and for not walking in obedience to God's word. So this is what has attracted the attention of these Pharisees and this uh, group of people that come to question John is he's questioning them. He's questioning their teaching. He's also declaring the coming of Messiah and he's attracting crowds because of speaking the truth. And so as we just read, John's message was that he was merely pointing to the one who was coming after him, who had existed from the beginning. So now we know why John's message was causing such a stir and drawing the attention of the religious elite. And then in Luke 3, we see that some began to wonder if John himself might be the Messiah. Because John's message was that the Messiah wasn't just coming at some distant future date, but John's message was that the Messiah was here and that the time was now. And so this is leading to all sorts of questions about his identity, not just from the religious leaders, but from the crowd as well. And so this is what causes this group to come, and this would be the exact type of thing that would pique their interest. They would either want to see if there was any validity to what this wild man was saying, or if he was simply speaking heresy and needed to be silenced. So they send some priests and some Levites, from Jerusalem to engage in a back and forth questioning dealing with John's identity. And John's first response is not to tell them who he is, but who he's not. He, he adamantly denies that he is not the Messiah by saying, I am not the Christ. And now the second question they ask him is oddly specific. You notice there, they ask if John is Elijah. Now, there are a few reasons why they may have asked if John was Elijah. First, John and Elijah are described as being very alike in their appearance. Matthew gives the description of John's appearance in his gospel account by, as wearing a camel hair garment and wearing a leather belt. And then in 2 Kings 1, Elijah is described as being hairy and wearing a leather belt. So, they may have been similar in their appearance. But secondly, Elijah was taken to heaven before he died. Therefore, they're asking if John is Elijah. And if, John is saying, if what John is saying is true, then he could be Elijah, returned to proclaim and prophesy the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, because of the prophecy of Malachi, many Jews to this day leave an empty chair at Passover time for the prophet Elijah's return. And so when John gets to the point of answering, he does so in an incredibly humble way. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. When he finally gets around to answering who he is, he doesn't simply say, by birth was prophesied by God, pronounced by an angel of the Lord, and this is who I am. I am John the Baptist. No, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and says there, verse 23, let's read again. He said, I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah 
said. You see, this verse not only reveals his identity, but it also reveals John's purpose. Because the main character of this quote from Isaiah is not the voice, but what is the voice doing? The voice is subservient to making a way and preparing the way for the Lord. And so in quoting Isaiah, John here is submitting himself and humbling himself and saying, I'm not the one you need to be looking for. I'm not the one you need to be prepared for. I'm not the one you need to be wondering about. You need to be prepared to meet the one who's coming after me. You see, church, our identity determines our purpose. And in John, quoting from Isaiah here, he's saying, my purpose is simply to prepare the way. When we know the truth of who we are, that determines the why of how we live. The prevailing culture of our day would have us think that life is all about discovering who we are by determining what makes us happy or what our truth is and how we can fulfill our greatest desires. And like we've already outlined, this means that the why of how we live then, our purpose, is then determined by our shifting standards of momentary happiness. So in identifying himself, John points to God's word. And here's what we read in Isaiah 40. You can turn there if you'd like, or you just make a note off to the side. But Isaiah 40 is where John quotes from. And I'll read that quote in its larger context, reading Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, if you just want to jot that down, or it'll be on the screen for you, where Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in identifying who he is and his purpose for preaching this message, this is what John is saying. That he is the one who is preparing. So just as John was uniquely created and sent by God with identity and purpose, we too have been sent by God for the purpose of declaring his name among the nations. Each of us has a unique role to play as part of God's design for his church. To serve his purposes. And in doing so, find true joy. Rather than our standards being set on momentary happiness, we can find true joy, lasting joy, in knowing who we are in Christ. Now, Isaiah's message was that the Lord was was working to deliver Israel from their exile punishment. And John's message was that Isaiah's prophecy was ultimately being realized in the person of Jesus. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. We'll get to that in a little bit. Therefore, John is exalting Jesus and humbling himself and challenging his audience to make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, repent and let the roadwork construction project on your heart begin. Because did you see what Isaiah is saying there? Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. So all the rough spots, everywhere in your heart that is not prepared, John has said, I have come to declare, make a way for the Lord because he is coming and he is here. So John is calling people to repentance so that they would realize the crookedness of their heart, the hardness of their heart, and their hearts would be prepared once Jesus comes and begins preaching. 
But this humility exhibited by John is consistent with his identity and purpose. Because he knows who he is, he is able to then submit himself and say he knows who he is in light of who Jesus is. John knows who he is, and even more importantly, John knows who he is in light of who Jesus is and who Jesus created John to be. Here lately, I've become overwhelmed at the consistent call throughout Scripture for the people of God to exhibit humility. It's consistent all throughout Scripture that we as the people of God are to exhibit humility in the face of an almighty, holy God who has called us according to his purposes and by his grace has saved us and redeemed us. And as I've thought about this theme, I've become more and more convinced that the reason the world does not know what true humility looks like is because the world does not know the humility of Christ. So as we look to our world and we continually see a lack of humility and uh, overabundance of self-exaltation, we know that it's because of the sinfulness of our world and the brokenness of our world. I've been so encouraged by our men's Sunday night Bible study group and I'm so thankful for the work that the Lord is doing in our hearts through his word. In that group, we're going through Philippians 2 right now. Men, our, our next meeting is next month, so make sure you're ready. But Or next, next week. <laughs> uh, if it's next month, you better be ready. But no, it's next week. Next week. So if you're familiar with Philippians 2, then you know where this is going. Because in chapter 2 of Philippians begins with this incredible challenge. For us to live in a constant state of humility. And I want us all to see where Paul points the Philippian church for their example of humility. So turn to Philippians 2. Keep your finger there in John because we're coming right back to it. But turn to Philippians 2 because I want us all to read this together. Or it'll be on the screen as well. But Philippians 2, starting in verse 1 where Paul begins this section of his letter by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, so just so we're all on the same page, he starts that sentence with so. It's essentially equivalent to starting a sentence with therefore. And so what he's saying, because of everything that Christ has accomplished in my imprisonment, everything that he is doing for his glory through all that is taking place here, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, in other words, this is rhetorical, because there is plenty of encouragement in Christ, and he's given the reason for that all throughout chapter 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So be completely unified in this is what Paul says. And we continue reading there in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And not only would this have been completely countercultural for his day, but this is completely countercultural for us. Because if the self is the greatest one who needs to be satisfied... That what Paul calls the church at Philippi to, and what we are called to as well, is to submit the self to the needs of the church. And ultimately, first and foremost, to the needs and what the commands of Christ. And so he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And we continue reading there, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so here's where it gets good, right here, verse five. Because then he draws, where do we draw this comparison from? Where do we draw this example for humility from? Verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Christ, who himself made himself subservient. Being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, so because of his servant's heart and because of his servant's nature, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is what it means to know our identity and purpose in light of the cross. That is to walk in constant humility with Christ's work on the cross as our standard for how we live our life. With Christ's humility as our standard for how we unify together as the body of Christ. With Christ's standard of humility for how we live our daily life. You might say to yourself, but we're only in John 1. So how could John the Baptist be living with Christ's humility as his standard when there's plenty of chapters left after John 1 which actually outline the life of Christ? And so how, how do we reconcile that? Well, let's keep reading because we're going to see. Verse 24 of John 1. Sorry, we're back in John 1. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So their response is to question with what authority John is baptizing with. After he reveals his identity as the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as he reveals his identity as the, the forerunner of the Messiah, their question then is no longer to question his identity, but to question what authority he has then to be baptizing. And John's response is once again one of humility, as he points to Jesus as the source of his authority. You see, our purpose is to glorify the king as we advance his kingdom. Our purpose is to glorify the king as we advance his kingdom. Because as John is asked what his authority is, he does not give some standing for his own authority or anything like that. He says, I am merely baptized with water, but among you stands one you don't know, whose strap of his sandal I am unworthy to untie. And so in being asked what authority he has, John's like, you're right. I'm not the one who has the authority. But the one who's coming, I am baptizing merely as the forerunner to him. So our purpose is to glorify the king, point to the king as we advance his kingdom. And so this is what it means to live life on mission for the glory of God in the world. With all humility, to live with the gospel as our message, Christ as our identity, and his glory as our purpose. Because as we keep reading, we see that when we humbly live with Christ as our identity and his glory as our purpose, then everything else in this convoluted world becomes that much more clear. As we pick back up in verse 29. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So don't miss what we just read right there. This is no simple passing statement that John offers there in verse 29. This statement is filled with theological significance for who Jesus is and for what he has come to do. 
With this one declaration, John testified to the entire gospel message. Because the symbol of the lamb was ubiquitous with the sacrificial atonement for sin offered in the temple twice a day. John's proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God was intentional here. As the son of a temple priest, he would have countless times seen his father return, stained with blood from the sacrifices that he had made in the temple that day. But seen the cost of sin stained upon his father's clothes and on his hands. Because at the beginning and the end of each day, a lamb would be sacrificed for the continual sins and the communal sins of the people. Then during the day, individuals would have to provide their own sacrifices for their own individual sin. But here's the kicker. According to John's statement here in verse 29, who is it that provided the lamb? God. Behold the Lamb of God. See, just as he sacrificed an innocent animal in the garden to provide clothes for Adam and Eve, just as God provided Abraham a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac, just as a lamb was sacrificed at Passover, just as a lamb was sacrificed daily for the communal and individual sin, so now God had provided his own lamb in the form of his son. And so in Isaiah, not too far removed from the pronouncement of the voice in the wilderness in chapter 40, we had the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53. And there we read that the Messiah would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Israel wanted a conquering king, but God sent them what they needed, a sacrificial lamb. When we live with Christ as our identity. Because this is what John has been pointing to. This is what he said was my purpose. That everything I'm doing is not to build up my own kingdom, my own following. But I am merely the voice who makes ready the way for the Lord, the one who is coming. And so when we live with Christ as our identity and his glory is our purpose then the blinders of sin are lifted from our eyes, the gag is removed from our mouth, and we realize that our purpose determines our message. Why is John able to so emphatically and boldly, confidently state who Jesus is and what he has come to do? Because John knows his own identity. And more importantly, he knows his own identity in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And so John's message of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world must become the cry of our heart and the anthem of our life so that we are no longer aimlessly walking through life. Instead, we are boldly and confidently walking through life with meaning and purpose. And that meaning and purpose is found in the message that we are delivering. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't miss this. Because if you miss this, you've missed the entire meaning of life. This means that those who I describe at the beginning of this morning's message, those who align with that line of thinking are aimlessly living life apart from God. And those who worship the created over the creator, whose reflection is their God and their corrupted heart is their compass, are headed for sure destruction. When you worship the self over the one who created the self, you are headed for sure, destruction. And that's why we, as a church, that's why we do stuff like pray and go. That's why we do who's your one. That's why we're willing and eager to pray for 30 days, 12 hours a day for the Muslim world. That's why we collect countless Easter eggs for the opportunity to present the gospel in a city park. That's why we give away brisket sandwiches by donation. That's why we sacrificially give to missions throughout the year. That's why we pursue opportunities for us to spread the gospel in our neighborhoods with the nations in our focus. 
We must live life with this mission and message in our mind. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's another reason why John's message of behold the Lamb of God must become the cry of our heart and the anthem of our life. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Also authored by John the Apostle. We read, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So this is John's message. This is John's revelation that he had on the island of Patmos in a cave. And he's writing down everything that the Lord is revealing to him as far as what is to come and what this message to encourage the churches. And he sees this in the right hand of the one who's on the throne, seating on the throne. He sees a scroll. We pick back up in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So this, he, he sees the Lord sitting on the throne with the, the scroll and no one's able or worthy to open the scroll. And in verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John is seeing this and he's seeing this angel proclaim who is worthy to open the scroll. And there's nobody. And so John begins to weep as he's despondent at what, is, what he's seeing, that no one is able to open this scroll. In verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So as John is despondent, he's told by one of the elders that there is no longer any need to weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And this we see is clearly referring to the work of Christ on the cross, which is accomplished and made it so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But it gets better. Verse 6. And between the thrones, so John turns to look and see where the elder is, what the elder is talking about as to why there's no reason. He's told the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he's told of a conquering lion that has made it so that the seals can be broken and the scroll opened and read. And when he turns and he looks, what does he see? Not a conquering lion, but a lamb standing as if it had been slain. He turns and he sees the lamb-like lion of the tribe of Judah who is worthy. In verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then John looks. He looked, and I heard around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne of the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever 
And all the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So this is what is in mind. This is what is in purview as John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, when we have truly beheld the Lamb of God, when our hearts have been impacted by the Lamb of God, we can't help but respond with shout of acclamation. We can't help but respond. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what happens? What, what, what happens when we declare that message faithfully? What happens when we submit ourselves in humility to the work that God has prepared us for, created us for, and purposed us for? What happens when we live with the confidence and assurance of our identity in Christ and our purpose in Christ and our message from Christ? Well, look back there in John. As we prepare to finish up, we see there verse 35 of chapter 1. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So as John sees Jesus again, he, he once again declares who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And these two disciples, they're not yet disciples, but they're disciples at the time that John was writing this. Two disciples heard him and say this, and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. So first they call him Rabbi. Where are you staying? Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Verse 40. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So what happens when we live out our identity in Christ, live out our purpose in Christ, and make Christ our message? John declares, behold the Lamb of God. These two disciples here, one of them, after following Jesus, goes and gets his brother and brings him so that his brother can come and see and meet the Messiah. So Andrew goes and gets his brother, just as he is now following in the reflection of what John has modeled, and he comes in and gets his brother, who is Peter, the one who the Lord uses to found his church. What happens when we walk in obedience to our identity and our purpose in Christ and we make Christ our message? This is what happens. The gospel spreads. People respond. Repentance, the way is made. The road construction on hearts is done. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, but yeah, but this is John the Baptist who had prophecies written about him, whose birth was foretold by an angel, who was given a message from God. How could that be the same for me? How could that be the same for us? We don't have prophecies written about us. We don't uh, have angels coming and making our birth possible through the, the work of God and the grace of God. And to that, I simply say, you've got to be kidding me. Colossians 1.16, for all things have been created by him and for him. And apart from him, not one thing exists that has been created. So you and I were created by the will of God for the glory of God. And there's our purpose. There's our identity. So what about our message? Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for us and raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, has commissioned us to go into the world and shine the light of the glory of the gospel, declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
See, our message is a beacon in the night. Like a lighthouse in the storm, our message points the world to the only place where they can find identity and purpose because we know that because it's the only place where we can find identity and purpose. And I know sometimes we can look at this dark and bleak world and be tempted to throw our hands up and say, what's the point? The point is that he who created us is faithful. He who calls us is faithful. He who secured our salvation is faithful. The point is that when the world is at its darkest, the light of the gospel shines brightest. So when institutions that we used to trust for wholesome family content are no longer reliable, when the family falls under attack, when wars rage and governments fail us, we cling to the truth and then we proclaim the truth. Our identity, our purpose, our message are reflections of Christ's identity, purpose, and message so that we can share the knowledge of the glory of the gospel with a dark and dying world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you accomplished for us in Christ in both his life, death, and resurrection. Help us to find our identity in this and this alone that you have created us for the very purpose of declaring this same message. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God, now as we move into a time of response, I pray that you would help us to truly reflect on how your word has impacted our hearts, how it has convicted us, how it has moved us. If there is need for repentance, then move us. If there is need for salvation, then move. God, don't let our stubborn hearts stand in the way of anything, but break us and move us in obedience to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.